there is something um, remarkably unique going on here. And you can't point to too many um, churches in the United States that have gone from 40 to 800 roughly in about five years, six years. And we have about 500 people attending on a typical weekend at the church. Um, And we recognize that what God is up to is bringing people into His kingdom. And we get to be part of that. And it's, it's a really unique, unique privilege. So, the staff and the elders have talked about what to do about Easter because God's up to something. And uh, just hear me on this. There are people whom you are surrounded with on a weekly basis that have questions about what it means to be a Christian. And they're a lot more curious than, that, than what you might think. People who are not active in church, who are not believers, who are curious about Christians. And Gary Post passed this thing on to me. I, I want to share it with you. It's uh, by Thomas Rainey. And Thomas wrote a book a few years ago, and in the midst of it, he surveyed thousands of people, non-Christians, about what they think about people who are Christians. Let me share with you the seven points he came up with. First of all, uh, and these are shared from quotes from individuals he talked to. Number one, Christians are against more things than they are for. Interesting. It just seems to me that Christians are mad at the world and mad at each other. They are so negative that they seem unhappy. I have no desire to be like them and stay upset all the time. Interesting insight, isn't it? Number two, I would like to develop a friendship with a Christian. I'm really interested in what they believe and how they can carry out their beliefs. I wish I could find a Christian who would be willing to spend some time and talk to me. Number three, I would like to learn more about the Bible from a Christian. The Bible really fascinates me. Number four, I don't see much difference in the way Christians live compared to others. That's convicting. Number five, I wish I could learn to be a better husband, wife, dad, mom, etc. from a Christian. Number six, some Christians try to act like they have no problems whatsoever. Huh. Now here's number seven. I wish a Christian would take me to his or her church. I really would like to visit a church, but I'm not particularly comfortable going by myself. What is weird is that I'm 32 years old, and I have never, ever, ever in my life had a Christian invite me to their church in my entire life. So, we're surrounded by people who want to know more about Christ. And this, this is just a sampling of thousands of people. In matter of fact, Thomas Rainey found in his surveys that actually only 5% of the people he talked to were really hostile towards the things of the church in Christ the other 95% were pretty open, willing to have conversations. And in recognition of that, because Easter is a time of year when you see people that you never see any other time of the year, because they're curious about the things of God, in the church world they're called Christers, okay? They, they come at Christmas and Easter. Are you tracking with me? It's, it's okay to laugh at that, you guys. Okay. Um, in, in the church world, we see people on Christmas and Easter sometimes who wouldn't come any other time of the year But then there's those who will never come unless they're invited. So because we believe God is up to something unique, we're going to ask you to participate in something that we've never done before in the life of New Hope. We're asking all 800 people who call New Hope their church home to come together on one service 
on Wednesday night next week, not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, the Wednesday before Easter, for a prayer event here in this auditorium. Now, you might look around and say, wait, this place only seats like 230 people. How are you going to do that? Well, it'll be uncomfortable, okay? I don't care if people are sitting on the floor and sitting in the back and hanging from the rafters and then up in the balcony, but what we want to do is bring everybody together because Michael's putting a worship team together, a big band, and we're going to spend some time praying about, God, what are you up to? Because this city is surrounded with a quarter million people who have questions and issues and you know the answers. So we're going to pray together about what God's up to in advance of Easter and let Him show Himself powerful in our midst. We good with that? Okay. All right, let's take a minute and pray together and we're going to step into the book of Ephesians. Heavenly Father, we come before You as a group of individuals who have spent time today. We've taken time out of our schedule to not only sing, but now to do our best to learn. Hopefully, Father, we're not here out of habit, but rather because we really long to know more of You and to understand You and perhaps have You speak to us independently. That we would know more of You and have You speak to us about what's going on in our own life individually. God, we would ask for that. So, we ask as we look at Your Word right now that You would open up our eyes and give us ears to hear and allow us to see what You want to communicate. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles with you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, but also if you would put your finger in Psalm 68 this morning. We're going to go to that in just a minute. So, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 to start with, but Psalm 68 also. Last time we were together a couple weeks ago, obviously I wasn't here last weekend, but we, we talked about that throughout our life, throughout the course of our life, from beginning to end, our identity, who we are identified as, is linked with our actions. You remember talking about that? Our identity is linked with our actions. So who we understand ourselves to be greatly affects how we act. And so Paul took Ephesians 1 through 3, the first chapters, First three chapters. And he said to us, you are a child of God. You're predestined in Him. You're chosen in Him. You've got an inheritance in Him. You're redeemed in Him. First three chapters, you're a child of God. Now in the fourth chapter we find, okay, act like one. Because of who you are, now it's your turn to act like Him. So, I'm stuck on this passage this week from Colossians, Colossians 3.1. I want you to see it up on the screen. Colossians 3.1 says this, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And that is really, really hard. That is such a hard struggle. And Paul's writing to a church who's maturing in Christ, and he's reminding them, now that you're in Christ, don't just settle for that. And that's the problem that I see in the church in America today. People are good with coming to Christ. They're introduced into the kingdom, and they think, I got my fire insurance. I'm protected. I'm sealed for eternity. And then for the rest of their life, they go into cruise mode. And cruise mode is comfortable for them until they reach near the end of their life. 
Most people are like that. And then for some reason, when they reach near the end of their life, they all of a sudden realize, wow, I didn't really ever spend any time studying God's word. I'd like to do more of that. Well, how about backing up earlier years in your life and starting now to begin to mature in Christ because that's what we're really called to according to this passage, that we would be raised up with Christ first of all, but that we would keep seeking the things that are above. That's why Paul writes, set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth because we're surrounded with nice cars and nice homes and nice job opportunities and great schools to go to. And those are all good things. But Paul's saying, don't let that be the focus of your life. Keep setting your mind on the things that are above. So here's the principle that's coming out of what we're going to look at this morning. My focus, my passion, I don't know what you're passionate about, but the things that I'm passionate about, that you're passionate about, it really sets the standard for my conduct. It, it determines how I chase after what I value. Now, we've been told that we're a child of God. We've been called by the God of the universe. So the higher your calling, the higher your conduct should be. Think of this example with me. The laws of our land are set at a minimum, minimum standard of expectancy. Okay? Let's just think of um, road signs. We have speed limit signs posted around our country telling us how fast we can go. And if you go on the, on the superhighways, they tell you your minimum is 45, your maximum is 70, and you've got to stay within that range. If, if you do that, you're good, okay? Or if, if you're in a 55 zone, don't drive 70 like some pastors I know, okay? Some of you know what I'm referring to. So we've got a minimum standard of expectancy in the laws of our land. Well, let's step it up a notch. What about if you're looking for a contractor for your home? You're looking for somebody to do a building project for you. Anybody can find a builder who will build to code. It's really hard to find a builder who will exceed code and look for the very best for you, constantly trying to help you solve the issue and take it a step further. Let's take it a notch further than that. What about in the occupation of the Supreme Court Justice of our land? Somebody is a nominee for the Supreme Court Justice and when they're brought up in the public eye and they're brought before the Senate and the House, there's a sense of expectancy that is very high that that person will not have inappropriate speech or that they will have prejudiced comments. The sense of expectancy is very high when the higher your calling is. What higher calling is there than to be in the church over which the Lord God of the universe rules? So we're being told, you're chosen in me. So live with your mind on the things of heaven. Keep your mind focused on the things that you're really, really all about. The minimum is not enough. Now, so far what we've just identified are problems. But the Bible is a, a problem-solving book. It's not just a, a problem-identifying book. It's solution-based. So God doesn't throw us into the lake and yell, swim, swim, without throwing us a lifeline or teaching us how to swim. And that's really what the Bible is. It's about teaching us how to swim. So let's go to Ephesians 4 and let's look at what God's lifeline is for us to help us understand how we're supposed to grow in Him. Ephesians 4.4 4 says this, first of all, There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
Now, while all believers may not agree on issues of doctrine, all can agree on these seven basic realities. And if you've got your notes this morning, you pulled them out of the bulletin, you'll also see this up on the screen. We're going to go through these seven basic realities. So if you're in Shanghai, or you're in Seoul, Korea, or if you're in Nairobi, Kenya, Africa, or if you're in Hazlitt, Michigan in the United States, you identify a believer, a true believer in Jesus Christ should all be able to agree on these seven issues that we're part of one body, first of all. And one body, meaning the body of Christ into which every believer is immediately placed as a member at the moment of salvation. One body, no denomination, no geographic lines, no ethnic lines, no racial body. Uh, We may meet in different places, we may eat different foods, we may speak with a different tongue, but we're one body in Christ. Number two, one spirit. The same Holy Spirit that indwells us all. It's the, the inner unifying force. We're told, as a matter of fact, in Ephesians 1.14, that the Holy Spirit was given to us as an engagement ring. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way before. But here's what we're told, Ephesians 1.14, He was given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. What's an engagement ring? From the one that you're a spouse to, it's given to you as a promise that I'm going to marry you. That's God's pledge. The Holy Spirit that indwells you is His promise that He's going to bring us to dwell with Him in eternity. We're promised to Him. That's why we're called the bride of Christ for that reason, because we belong to him. And nothing can change that. Number three, we're told we have one hope. One hope of our calling. I mean, that's referring to the fact that we're going to have eternity with Jesus one day. The resurrection ensures your eternal life. That's why Easter is such a big celebration, because Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's a guarantee. You're going to spend eternity with God. And number four, we have one Lord. Jesus Christ, who died for us, lived for us, and one day is coming back for us. You believe that? Absolutely, that's the truth. So that's why we're told in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So we've got one hope, we've got one spirit, we've got one faith, we've got one body, one Lord, So therefore, because of all those things, we're told the fifth one is this one faith. And we're not referring to the act of faith by which you said, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. What we're really talking about here when we say one faith is the immensity of truth that Jesus deposited into his church, the the faith for which we are to contend, that Jesus Christ was born, raised born of a virgin, raised a man here on earth, the Son of God, that He died for our sins, was buried three days, and resurrected on the third day. That's the one faith. And we're supposed to contend for that faith according to what Jude wrote. But because people misinterpret things in the Bible, there's these fractions that take place. So the one faith is the content of the revealed Word of God. And that leads us to one baptism. And what we're really talking about here in baptism is identity with Christ. Now, this became extremely important to the people living in the first century. Now, we're in a very comfortable setting here. We get to enjoy an air-conditioned building, heated or cooled. And we get to sit in comfortable pews and carpeted floors. We get to watch people go into a baptism tank full of water to be baptized, and in that moment, they identify themselves publicly and say, I belong to Jesus Christ. But put yourself in the first century. What if you were living at the time of Nero 
when he had wanted posters placed all over the place for Christians who were to go into public places, into the rivers, and be baptized and say, I publicly declare I belong to Jesus. See, at that moment, that put their life on the line and put their face on the wanted poster because Nero was very likely to burn them on the end of a torch or to throw them to the lions. So Paul's writing about this unifying factor that brings the church together and the fact that we have this one faith leads us to this one baptism in whom we belong in Christ and we declare publicly saying, I believe in Jesus and I'm willing to tell everyone about that. So all these elements he's listed, these first six, they all function together as a uniting factor for the larger church. That leads us right to the trump card, number seven. And he says in verse six, one God and Father of all, uh, Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Basic truth of the Scriptures. Old Testament truth, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Jewish Shema. And it's said again in the New Testament here, the Lord our God, the Lord is one because he said one God, one Father of all who is over all, through all, in all. So we are God created, we are God loved, God saved, God fathered, God blessed. God's given us everything. We're one people under one sovereign, omnipotent God. And then Paul makes this really hard shift in verse 7. It's like, Hard right shift. He shoves the clutch in and and jams it into gear and he goes to verse 7. And why does he say it this way? But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is kind of a complicated passage, just so you know, theologically as as we work through this. So if your brain hurts a little bit, it's okay. You're in good company. So when he says in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given. The word but could be translated in the Greek language as this. On the other hand... On the other hand, you've been given grace. So we've talked about all these things that unify us together, but we're also told we've got this issue of grace to deal with. If you were to ask someone who is a believer in Christ for a one-word definition, a one-word definition of the gospel, you'd use the word grace. Grace. God is a God of grace because He's a God who freely gives, and that's what grace is. Grace is something that's given. It has nothing to do with anything that I've done, nothing to do with anything that I have failed to do. It can only be received. So grace is God's self-donation to you, if you want to think of it that way. God donated himself to you. So staggering truth of the gospel. God donated himself to you when you were not worthy of him doing that. Allow me to contrast that for you. This might strike you as a little frank, but I'll just describe it this way. Each of us in this auditorium who are married, or may be married one day, or maybe you were married at one time, you can think in your mind that you probably concocted in your mind a list, a list of the things that you wanted your spouse to measure up to. Now, you may not say it this way, especially to the person you're dating, but you're thinking in your mind, I want this person to be worthy of the love that I'm going to give them. So you concoct in your mind a list of expectations. I I want them to be a certain level of devotion, a certain level of loyalty, perhaps a certain level of educational standards. I I don't know what your list is, but everybody has their list in their mind. So we try and determine this person will receive my love and I'll dedicate myself to them through marriage because it takes a lot of devotion through the course of my life if they're worthy Well, the truth is, when God chose us before the foundation of the world, He did it out of pure grace, not because He saw us as worthy. 
because we really don't have anything to bring to the table. Sinners full of grace. So sinners full of sin who are redeemed by grace. So Paul's making the case here in verse 7. But to each one of us, on the other hand, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So he's gently stepping into this realm of spiritual gifts. Gifts that he's given to each one of you. And if you don't think you have a spiritual gift, you're calling God a liar. Because God said you do have a gift. It might be wisdom, it might be discernment, it might be compassion. Some of you might have the gift of generosity. Whatever God deposited in you is something that Jesus measured out. According to this, Jesus got out a measuring cup and He decided how much of this gift He was going to give to you. He measured out the exact portion of each gift. And the truth is, our gifts are not predetermined by our preferences or our natural abilities. No more than I got to determine if I was going to be born with blue eyes and blonde hair and have parents Richard and Ruth Kring who are Dutch descent and white-skinned in Whitehall, Michigan. I didn't get to decide any of that. That was God's choice. So in the same case, God gets to decide who gets spiritual gifts, what kind of gift you get. And there's not a single kind of gift. It makes us all very, very unique. We might have, let's say, a hundred gifted, spiritually gifted teachers. But among that hundred, there might be one who excels in public speaking. There might be one who excels in teaching children. There might be one who excels in one-on-one communication. See, they're all different, but they still have the gift of teaching. And then you add to it individual personality and background and education and the influences in life, and you find the body of Christ is really made up of very unique people. And here's the problem. The problem is when a believer does not use their gift and they become spectators, stepping back either saying, I don't have a gift or my gift doesn't really need to be used. No Christian, according to Scripture, is to be a spectator. Every single one of us is on the team. There's no spectator sport. And we're strategic in God's plan. So Paul tells us when Jesus conquered Satan, he began distributing gifts. That's what verse 8 is. Go with me to that. Verse 8 says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lowest parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Very complicated passage of Scripture. Let's, let's break it apart a little bit because Paul's about to list some specific gifts that he's given to the church. And this is where I want you to turn to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, Old Testament quote of what you just read in the New Testament. Psalm 68 is something that David wrote. And he's going to explain for us how Jesus has the right to give gifts to you. Look with me on the screen or if you have it in your Bible, Psalm 68, 18. You have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, in our society today, 2013, as was true in the time of David, songwriters existed to write songs about current events. David, King David was one of those. King David was a songwriter about current events, things that were going on. And we know it as the book of Psalms today. Other songwriters existed, and they wrote songs about God as well. 
So we think of country music today or pop music, people who sit down, maybe if you're a country music fan, you think of Toby Keith. He's real big on writing songs about world events or current events. That's what King David was doing. So here's what's going on. When Paul is quoting him, he's referring back to a time when the Israelites went to war. And they went to war with a nation called the Jebusites. And the Jebusites were a thorn in the flesh to Israel. Well, God led them in battle, and they were victorious. They carried the Ark of the Covenant before them. We're we're talking Indiana Jones, okay? The the gold box with the Ten Commandments inside it, and and the uh, the, uh, the rod of Aaron. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant before them. They were victorious, and they defeated the Jebusites. And so Paul has written this thing about God ascending on high. How did that work? Well, after the battle, they took the Ark of the Covenant, carrying it on their shoulders, up the hill called Mount Zion. So the imagery is of God ascending on high. That's why David wrote what he did. Therefore, when he ascended on high... Now, here's what was the custom of the kings at those times. When a general or a king would lead his nation in battle, and he would go up against the enemy after he had conquered the enemy, he would cross the battle lines and go into enemy territory looking for prisoners of war. But two forms of prisoners of war. He first would capture his enemy's living soldiers and carry them, take them back in chains to his capital city and parade them around in front of his people, showing that he was a victorious general. But he also, as he crossed the enemy territory lines, would be looking for his own soldiers who had been captured in battle. Prisoners of war, POWs, who were behind bars, who were in chains, waiting for their victorious king to come and set them free, releasing them from their captivity. And he would take them back to the capital city and free them in front of his people, declaring that they are now free. So this phrase, he ascended on high, you're looking at the triumphal ascent of Jesus back to the heavenly city when Paul quotes this in verse 8. Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. Where does that phrase come from? Well, when the conquering general went across the enemy lines into enemy territory and he took those who were captive, he captured his own men and led the captives captive back into freedom. That was you. That was me. See, we are held in the chains of darkness. The spiritual battle going on between God the Father and the fallen angel Lucifer continues to this day. And when Jesus freed us, he led captivity captive. He led us out of captivity into freedom in Christ. So we're looking here at the crucifixion and the resurrection, the conquering of Satan, the conquering of sin, the conquering of death. That's why Colossians 2.15 was written. Let me remind you of what that says. Look with me on the screen. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities... He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So through this great victory, Jesus led captivity, a host of captives, into freedom to the heavenly city. Once prisoners of the enemy, now return to the Lord God. But here's the truth. God has today yet unsaved people who are still in captivity. They belong to the king. 
but they're still behind bars and in shackles and chains because they haven't been released yet. And that's why God sends His church out. They're still in Satan's grasp, and they remain there. Let me give you an example of this. When Paul was in the city of Corinth, which was the capital city, he was afraid for his life, and he wanted to run in fear because there were death threats against him. But God visited him in the night and gave him a vision telling him that there were yet in the capital city many people who belonged to him. They just had not yet been set free. Let me show you this on the screen. It comes from Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. See that next phrase? For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. They were not people who had yet come to Christ, but if you read the rest of the story, you'll find that during that year and a half, Paul not only edified and strengthened believers, but he introduced new people to Christ. There are people who belong to him but are not yet saved from the bondage of the king of darkness. Could we say that that's true about the capital city here today? Is that true of East Lansing? Hazlitt? Okemos? Dansville, Weberville, Holt, Mason, Grand Ledge, DeWitt, you name the town. Are there people who are living in captivity who have not yet been set free by the king? See, the king has already won the victory. He's already crossed the battle lines. But there's people who are still living in the chains of darkness, and God's waiting for his people to go out. He says the harvest is, is white. It's ready to be harvested. I just need my people to get out there and tell them Thus our emphasis on Easter this year. A great opportunity for the church to be the church. So Paul's saying when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. And he's beginning to talk about spiritual gifts. So Jesus, upon arriving in heaven, did exactly, we're told here, what the kings of earth did. When he arrived in the heavenly city, the kings, when they arrived in their hometown, they would take the spoils of war and begin distributing to them people. And we're told here that Jesus, upon arriving in heaven, like a triumphant conqueror, re-entering his city gave, according to Acts 1.8, gifts to everyone when the Holy Spirit was breathed out on mankind. And you received the gifts of the Spirit. I don't know what that gift is in you today. Now, we're not going to be able to go any further forward than this because I, I, I prepared to go further. And this week I really ratcheted it up to go to verse 11, 12 and try and take you all the way to 16. But this is what I felt God telling me last night in the midst of the Saturday night service. Mark, don't you dare rush through this. So we'll consider this part 8A, okay? And next week will be part 8B because God wants to tell us about the gifts that He's given. So when He says in verse 11, and He gave some as apostles, He's talking about He gave some gifts to the church. So here's what you're going to get to do next week. Um, we'll, we'll consider this like Mark's job performance review, all right? Because when you read verse 11, it says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Just pop that verse up there, would you? Verse 11. There we go. So this last part, some as pastors and teachers, what you're about to see is that verse 11 is a setup for how I do my job. My job description is about to be given. 
Because what the Bible tells us is that it's my job to equip you. And this will sound really harsh, but I mean this from the bottom of my heart. If I'm not doing my job in equipping you and teaching you the Word of God, you should look for another church. You really should. If you're not growing in Christ, find a place where you're growing in Christ. If you're not sensing that God's really increasing you in your walk, it's so important that you do. Find a place where that happens. And so, I'm not trying to put myself on the firing line, all right, but Joe Bustamante, one of the elders here last night, called me after the Saturday night service, and he said, is it okay if Sue and I bring scorecards next week? We'll just kind of like 3.2, 4.5. I was thinking like 9.5, but okay, so that, that's what we're going to be getting into next week, but this is so critically important about how God is designed for His church to work so that you're thoroughly equipped to go out and do what you do. I do not want to rush through this, all right? So we're going to stop right there. I'm going to pray with you right now that God would take just this first portion that we've used and would really drive it home deep. Would you pray with me about that? God, I I know that it's your heart to grow your church. And immediately our mind thinks of growing by numbers. But we know what your heart is, is that we would grow in our walk with you. And the natural outgrowth of that is that we would increase in numbers because it'll be contagious. It'll just leak out of us, Father. So, Father, I ask this week, as we move through these next seven days, that you would ambush us, that you would surprise us with your power in the midst of our walk. God, I ask that you would take New Hope as a community and make us bold for your behalf. That we would be willing to advance your kingdom no matter what the cost. And you've given us the equipment to do it with. Help us to be willing to use the equipment, Father. God, I ask for your blessing upon these people for spending time here this morning to learn more about you and who they are in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.